HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Doesn't Kill You, a Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Kate Kiefer. And in the studio with me today is Dr. Marion Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She is the author of numerous books, including Food Politics, Safe Food, and What to Eat. She writes a monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle. She blogs at foodpolitics.com, and she has a brand new addition to her bookshelf, Eat Drink, Vote, An Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. So, Marion, what was the inspiration for doing this? This is kind of like the, um, I don't know, the, the layman's guide to eating and drinking and voting with your fork. I call it food politics light, L-I-T-E, yeah. light. <laughs> um, oh, this was a project that just fell into my lap, and it was so delicious. I just couldn't turn it down. Um, when I was doing the permissions, for Why Calories Count. I had a few cartoons in there, and you can't just reprint cartoons and books. You have to get permission for them. Very elaborate and annoying process. Um, And so I managed to find the copyright holder for a couple of cartoons that were in the book. And in the course of discussing it, with her, how much was she going to charge me? And I'm, yeah. a poor, and I'm a poor, starving academic, and all that kind of thing. She said, "Are you the Marion Nessel who wrote Food Politics?" And I said, "Guilty as charged." And she said, "You know, I've always thought that using the Food Politics cartoons from our collection would be just a fabulous book." And I said. Oh, can I play in your sandbox? Oh, I love cartoons. I've always used them in my teaching. I've always used them in my books. And the idea of getting my hands on a lot of cartoons about food politics themes and not having to pay for them was more than I could imagine. We were off and running. She sent me 1,100 cartoons to pick from. 
she's got a really great database. It's the cartoonist group in uh-huh. Seattle. They represent about 50 cartoonists. And a lot of them are political cartoonists. A lot of them are, are Pulitzer Prize winners. I mean, they're really good. Oh, they were terrific. And so she sent me this just you know, influx of cartoons. And then I had to figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Uh, but we found a publisher, Rodale. Everybody was really excited about it. And actually, once I figured out what to do about the cartoons, the book wrote itself. I can imagine. It was really easy. And to me, it's like the perfect uh, layman's guide to why you should pay attention to what you're eating and how you can effectively sort of push the needle along the meter in terms of your own choices and decisions because it makes it clear through the cartoons and also through the writing, which is very clear and very concise, what are these issues, what do we need to be paying attention to, and how can we affect change in our own lives? And I, for me, it was like the perfect kind of, well, like you said, it's light, L-I-T. L-I-T. Really easy to Uh, read. uh, It's really fun. Yeah, I mean, what I liked about it, um, what I like about it so much is that I can have my say. I can say what I think about these things. And then the cartoons speak for themselves. And that was actually the toughest problem in dealing with the book was what was I, how was I going to deal with the individual cartoons? Was I going to write commentary on each one? And I decided that would be very boring. Very boring. Very boring. Instead, the cartoons make your points. Well, or argue with my points. They do one or the other. Right. And then the other problem was, or the, the other challenge, I guess, was what do I do about cartoons whose points of view I don't really like, but I think they're great cartoons? Uh-huh. You know, people who are making fun of the food movement or cartoons that are making fun of fat people, I really didn't like those. Um, or cartoons that are libertarian in their political persuasion. What right. was I going to do about those? And I thought, well... Put them in there and let, sure. pe- let people make up their own minds. Absolutely. Well, you bring up a lot of really interesting points. And um, one of the ones that struck me the first was the impact of food aid and international relationships and the political sort of um, battles that are waged over that. Because, of course, we're anxious to unload our surpluses. Uh, farmers want to get that little piece of money that they get from that, whether it's given as a donation and they get a break or whether they get some sort of small return. And I thought that was an interesting aspect of the book that people don't really think about a lot. But let's talk a little bit about how food aid and international relations are very much intertwined. Well, there's a chapter on that in the book because I thought some of the most powerful cartoons dealt with international issues. Right. Hunger, population growth. My favorite was the the, the Zeppelin flying, dropping the loads of Wonder Bread. <laughs> Wonder Bread in <laughs> Over Korea. North Korea. Over North Korea. Yeah, I mean, that's that a, was brilliant. That is a gorgeous cartoon. Yeah. And I actually, it didn't really fit very well with a lot of the other things I was writing about, so I wrote a section just for it <laughs> because I wanted to use it. Yeah, I don't blame you. It was I brilliant. wanted to use it. I just loved it so much. Um, the uh, the cartoonists are just really angry about a lot of these issues, mm. and the anger shows through really clearly. Yes. Um, and they're angry about how we have so much and other countries have so little. This is typically displayed by showing the United States as some grotesquely fat person and the rest of the world as some grotesquely starving person. Um, but they're, you know, they're often drawn beautifully, and the commentary is so bitter and acute. 
Yes. Um, I really liked it. They, they, those were great, and they were sh- quite shaming, actually. Yeah. I mean, it really did make you think, like, oh, my God, this is really embarrassing. Here we are, the fattest nation. And, and quickly exporting our fatty ways to mm-hmm. the rest of the world, including the crappy nutrition and everything. Um, in fact, this morning on the Huffington Post, like, speaking of how we're sort of evolving, where everything has to be sweet and everything has to be supersized, the Huffington Post had 20 ways to eat chocolate for breakfast this morning. I couldn't believe it. It's like as if that cereal- sounds like a cartoon. I know, right? As if cereal companies haven't done enough to turn breakfast into dessert. Now we grown-ups need to eat chocolate for breakfast as well. That's I, that just blew my blew my That's mind. That's hilarious. But um, one of the things that really interests me about um, you know the way that uh, the government funds our commodity crops, like the cereal crops, like corn and soy and so on, and dairy and meat. I w- and they've had so, such an impact on how food is produced in this country and the whole snack food industry and soda. I was And you make a point that there is an increase in price of about 40% in fruit and vegetables over the last decade or so, and that is commensurate with the decrease in the commodity-based products. And I was wondering if you had any explanation for why it is that row crop agriculture or fruits and vegetables, you know, the guys that are engaged in that form of agriculture, haven't organized as effectively or at all, as far as I can tell, uh, in terms of lobbying for their space in the farm bill for you know better benefits for their type of agriculture. What do you think is the reason behind that? I think that? there are two reasons. I mean, lots of people have speculated about it. I think there are two reasons. One is that they don't have the same kind of money. If you're a vegetable grower, you just don't have as much money as you do if you're a corn or soybean sure. grower. And the other is that they don't view each other as... Um, colleagues or allies. They view each other as competitors. So um, the broccoli growers are at loggerheads with the carrot growers, and the peach growers are fighting with the apple growers. And they don't, I mean, even though they're united in trade organizations that represent fruit and vegetable growers, they've been unable to collect enough money to do the same level of lobbying that some of these other well, they don't have the checkoff do. programs. They don't have the checkoffs. Well, there are a few. There are a few fruits and vegetables that have checkoffs, but mostly the fruit and vegetable growers vote against them. They don't mm. want them. So there was a classic case in California where the peach and apple growers, the apple growers, wanted to check off. The peaches said, "No, the apple people will win," and that was the end of that. And the checkoff programs are the ones that develop generic marketing. That's right. And they're um, and the way they are funded is that every everyone who participates in that industry t- basically tithes off a little piece of every dollar that they earn goes into the checkoff. And so in the case of commodity farmers like the meat, dairy, and cereal industries, yeah, it's hundreds of millions. It's billions of dollars. No, it's hundreds, hundreds of millions. Of millions. Hundreds okay. of millions. Oh, come of on, dollars. let me keyferize that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the big ones are a couple of hundred million dollars a year. Yeah. Those are the really big ones. And so the fruit and vegetable people have never been able to do that. There are pieces in the farm bill in whatever state the farm bill is at this particular right. moment in time um, that benefit fruit and vegetable growers, but we're talking about millions of dollars, not billions. Right. So in, the, in farm bill terms, it's a rounding error. 
it's hardly enough money to talk about. Wow, that's that's scary. Um, we one of the other things that you brought up is food safety and the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was signed into law, I think, in 2010 and is yet to really be fully implemented. Um, and um, we are now right now in the wake of a huge outbreak of Salmonella Heidelberg uh, emanating from one Foster Farms mm-hmm. chicken uh, producers out in California. They have three plants, and all three plants were implicated in this. And this actually was very interesting. It's one of the biggest recalls of poultry, certainly of mm-hmm. chicken. No recall. No, there was no recall. I guess that's Except my point. It was Costco. It was Costco, Costco sent mm-hmm. it back. Um, but but the oh, sorry about that. But the. Um, the response of Foster Farms has been first to apologize in a few ads, um, and then now they're saying that they have implemented all these fantastic new safety measures, um, and such as acidifying the bedding and giving vaccines that are specific to Salmonella Heidelberg. And um, Dr. Marsden, James Marsden, you probably know him. Do you know him? Mm-hmm. No. He is the professor of food safety and security at Kansas State University. He's a big deal in the um, in the industry. Talks a lot about how great our food safety system is. And he said, during the outbreak, there were many who pushed for a recall of Foster Farms products. And in my view, a recall would not have accomplished anything other than frightening consumers. This wasn't an outbreak that resulted from a specific processing failure. There were no specific lots to recall. That's true. Um, it was much more about a general salmonella problem across the entire poultry industry and then he went on to excuse me <laughs> excuse me right and then he goes on to say that foster farms is now the benchmark in poultry security and that they're doing an absolutely wonderful job and i just wondered if we had the food safety modernization act and all of its glory actually implemented do you think that that would have caught this outbreak before it made so many people sick 338 people most of whom went into the hospital with a multi drug resistant it's probably 9000 people it probably is but some because the, so few cases are reported yeah. um this one is interesting because the blame was shifted to consumers Always. if you stupid consumers would only cook your chicken properly and run your kitchens as if they were maximum security facilities right. uh, and sterilize everything That's you know right. there wouldn't if you be, had a hasset plan in place in, in your kitchen. Yeah, I mean, they're supposed to have a HACCP plan in place in their plants, but they obviously weren't following it. Exactly. And the idea that Salmonella Heidelberg is all over their factory and not... Um, yeah, it sort of leaves you breathless. It does, and I think the Department of Agriculture should have shut them down. Absolutely, I thought the pl- I couldn't believe there was no recall, and I couldn't believe the plants were not shut. And moreover, this this was also interesting, not just because of the that it was a multi drug resistant strain of Salmonella, but also because it was cross contaminated. In other words, there were cooked foods. Right. That were sold by Costco. Right. I mean, as well as raw foods. And yeah, that's terrifying. That so was the, really That's sad. terrifying because that means either that the chickens that were rotisseried were not <clears throat> were not rotisseried to a high enough temperature to right. kill the bacteria, or it means they were put on a table where the raw chickens had been and they were cross contaminated after they were cooked. Yeah, I mean, you would think that anything that's been on a spit for some number of hours would be sterile and yes. wouldn't be a problem. Um, Costco, to its credit, yeah. Costco recalled immediately those chickens, yeah. and so they bore the brunt of the problem. Whereas it looks to me me is if Foster Farms is getting off scot-free. Yeah, they're just going to acidify the bedding and, and use vaccines that are specific to Salmonella Heidelberg, along with a couple of other sort of window dressing Oh, type. I do hope they do some testing. 
Oh, well, that brings us to the hemp issue, which I don't know. If you've been, <laughs> I don't know if you've been following Katie, that. <laughs> you can't wish this on your listeners. <laughs> okay, never mind. All right, so then let's go on and talk about the nanny state. The nanny state. All I right. do wish this on my listeners, actually, Mary. And yeah. I keep, I'm doing a show about hemp tomorrow, so don't tell me it's going to be more. I have the Government Accountability Office going, talking right. to me about that. That's terrific. They're yeah. just the people who should be. Yeah, exactly. So the nanny state, how much does the government really, I mean, how much should government be intervening in people's choices and how much should we expect people to be responsible? The government is intervening in people's choices. I mean, the food system that we have now is the result of a lot of government policies. And these policies are deliberately designed to promote certain the consumption of certain kinds of foods rather than others because they're subsidized or because food corporations get to deduct the cost of marketing as business expenses. So, you know, I love that. Yeah, that's a good one. That I didn't know, and that I learned from reading your book. Yeah, that's yeah. a new one. That's a good one. It's not, <laughs> it's not new. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, so the corporations are supported in many, many different ways, and the existing food system is supported in many different ways. So all that's being asked by annoying food advocates like me, um, is to tweak the system so it supports healthier choices rather than unhealthy choices. And that means everything from changing the way the farm bill works um, to doing things on the consumption side, Mm -hmm. like 16-ounce soda caps, Bloomberg's clever idea that may or may not come to pass. I, I think it's doomed. I think it's DOA. I mean, it already has been. Well, it's in the courts. We'll see. It's in the courts. But I, I just don't see that one going by. I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer myself. I mean, do I want legislation to tell me? I mean, I personally, of course, don't even drink soda. So, I mean, I don't well, care. We, but we've done this for cigarettes. I know, right? exactly. And, I think, and we and did I, it for seatbelts. And we did it for seatbelts. I think most people would think that the measures that have been put into place to keep people from smoking were good for individuals and good for society because yeah. society doesn't have to pay the health care costs of people with horrible lung diseases. Right. Um, and the same kinds of arguments can be used for sodas. Sodas are an easy target mm-hmm. because they're sugars and water and nothing else, and they have no redeeming nutritional value whatsoever. No. Um <laughs> And uh, you know, and that's why so many people are trying to tax them. Yeah, you know, it's it's a and so there's always a lot of distress when these kinds of things come up. But then after a while, everybody gets used to them, and then everybody thinks they're a really good idea. Yeah. Well, I think taxing soda makes. I mean, you tax cigarettes. Why wouldn't you tax soda? Let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Dr. Nessel. Uh, Stay tuned for more about Eat, Drink, Vote. And we'll be right back after this sponsor drop. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. 
And we're back with Dr. Marion Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. We're talking about her newest book, Eat, Drink, and Vote. And we were talking a little bit about the nanny's date before the break. And now I want to just um, check in with you about labeling. How are we doing with labeling? Do you think labeling laws have gone far enough? Are they going to go any further? Or are we going to see any of those changes that were proposed? <laughs> <laughs> a few years ago? Well, uh, everybody's dragging their feet Everybody's on dragging feet. When the Obama administration came in, the FDA announced that it was going to be taking a new look at the Nutrition Facts label on food right. packages because those that law came out in 1990 and we're now 20 years down the road and a lot of things have changed since then. Um, and the FDA started slowly moving in that direction, but so far nothing's happened. Although I have heard rumors that they will propose some revisions to the label by the end of the year. I do not know whether those rumors are true. Uh, they also uh, got the Institute of Medicine to do a couple of reports on front-of-package labeling as sort of a countermeasure to the kinds of things that food companies were doing about putting logos on the front of packages telling consumers how healthy yeah. the, the junk foods were. Uh, and the FDA, these two reports from the Institute of Medicine made a very clear recommendation to the FDA that... Um, the FDA do something similar to traffic light labeling, but not quite, because that's too controversial here. And the food industry had already said it would never do traffic light labeling. Um, but it was pretty close, and it was, a, I think, a very good idea. It's been dropped completely. Totally. And the FDA has allowed the grocery manufacturers and the Food Marketing Institute to put those little things on the upper right-hand corner of cereal boxes that nobody understands or looks at. That. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, they're guidelines. They're guidelines. <laughs> I don't think I've ever received one. Yeah, they're those little green things on the top of cereal boxes that tell you what percentage of, of your daily salt, sugar, and daily requirement really? these things have. Nobody looks at them. Totally missed it. Right. Well, you, you're supposed to. You participated in the Pew report in 2008 um, about sort of. The state of agriculture now, I forget what the actual name of that report was. The um, Industrial Farm Animal Production. Thank you. Industrial Farm Animal Production. And just last week, uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, New Center for a Livable Future Institute came out with a sort of new like uh, progress report on mm -hmm. that 2008. A lack of progress report. Yes, a lack of progress <laughs> <laughs> Although the Animal Agricultural Alliance, at the same time, the very same day, as a matter of fact, came out with their own report on the extraordinary steps forward that the animal agriculture community has made in food safety, in animal handling, in addressing the antibiotics issue, and so on. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But um, I wanted to know what you thought about, because you participated in that 2008 report, um, from the Pew uh, Center, and what did you think of the conclusions that they drew? Were they fair? Were they accurate? Were they... Well, the report's original, the original report, which is still online and easily available, uh, had a bunch of recommendations, of which the major one was to stop using 
antibiotics as growth promoters in animal agriculture. That's probably the most important one. Mm -hmm. And the other one that I thought was really profound and important was we have environmental laws that govern the waste from confined animal feeding operations. Uh, Why don't we just enforce them? (laughs) Oh, yeah. who's going to do that? Who's, who's going to vote for the I funding? Mean, in for other that? words, the I laws mean, are in place right. to govern the pollution of streams, soil, and air. Yeah. And if you've ever been within a couple of miles of a CAFO pig farm, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, so nothing's happened along any of that. I, I have not seen the Animal Alliance report. I'm rather surprised. I'm going to send it to you. Please do. Yes, you'll love it. It's wonderful. Please do. It's really great. In fact, they held a teleconference, which I participated in, because uh-huh. at the last moment, uh, the day before the conference, which I think was last Tuesday, I was, of course, reading meetingplace.com, as I do morning and evening, and there was a brief mention of the teleconference, so I called my friend Emily Meredith, who's the communications director at the Animal Agriculture Alliance, and I said, Emily, how do I participate? She's like, oh my god, I can't believe I forgot to send you the link. <laughs> <laughs> And as you can imagine, it was, you know, the the report was written by all the usual suspects, Dr. Richard Raymond, who I've interviewed numerous times, uh, who was a former food safety and inspection services and an undersecretary of agriculture, Dr. Scott Hurd, who was also part of the FDA and the food safety and inspection services, who's a veterinarian, who's a really great guy. Anyway, it was, I mean, really, it was truly a wham, wham, wham session. And what was interesting to me about this teleconference is that they came out swinging, on the subject of antibiotics, which, as I'm sure you know, uh, about two years ago, a a sort of guideline was put into place by the FDA where they suggested that uh, animal agriculture uh, enterprises voluntarily withdraw antibiotics from the, they don't like to call it subtherapeutic, they like to call it uh, low dose. Um, And this is theoretically slowly happening and that they also have to now enlist the aid of a veterinarian to actually be able to treat their animals instead of just giving them antibiotics whenever they feel like it if they think an animal is sick, which is pretty much what happens now. And as Dr. Hurd pointed out to me in an, in- in an interview, um, there are very few large animal vets to help them uh, implement any of these regulations. Right, because so. all veterinarians are doing cats and dogs these days because yeah. there's no money in the exactly. in large animal veterinary practice, which is another big problem. It is another big problem. It's easier to kill the animal than it is to treat it. To treat it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the animal agriculture industry because mm-hmm. I think they're caught between the rock, the proverbial rock and the hard place. I mean, the United States has, you know, we demand cheap meat. Now we got cheap meat. Now we're mad we got cheap meat. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, They can't win. They, they can't yeah, win. they really can't win. So, but anyway, they have to stop using antibiotics. Let's go back to foster farms. Yes. Um, these were bacteria that were resistant to multiple That's antibiotics. Right. Multi-drug resistant. You do not want to get a bacterial infection that is resistant to multiple drugs. No. You just don't. That's right. You're in trouble. Yeah, I'm surprised there weren't more fatalities actually there associated any. with that. There aren't any. There aren't no, any. That's quite surprising. It is. Well, one of the things that Dr. Hurd said, Dr. Scott Hurd, who is um, an associate professor at the uh, State Uni- uh, uh, Iowa State University, yeah, in the veterinarian thing, he suggested that, um, speaking about uh, the use of antibiotics, he claims, and this is a quote from what he said, look at the scientific literature, <clears throat> there has never been a peer-reviewed scientific study or use-appropriate methodology to review the role of antibiotics uh, 
in creating multidrug resistant strains of bacteria, especially from Pew, end quote. He also suggested that Pew and the Center for um, Livable, Livable Future, Future is, quote, out to shut down the meat industry. And this is something I have heard over and over and over again in interviewing people who work in the livestock sector. Why would they assume that anyone wants to shut down their industry? I mean... Well, the uh, Center for Livable Future has an animal rights agenda, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And any, like GMOs, any criticism of the industry is interpreted as an attack on the industry as a whole. Yeah. Um, so it's not possible to criticize animal welfare practices without being interpreted as wanting to, as having a, what's really at stake here is that these people are vegans and don't That's want right. anybody eating meat. Yeah. You know, there may be a grain of truth floating around in there because there <laughs> certainly were people on the Pew Commission who believe very, very strongly in animal welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, whether they're also vegetarians or vegans is questionable. I'm not sure about that. But there certainly was a strong animal welfare argument that was being made. And I must say, I was quickly converted. Mm. I never thought of myself as an animal welfare advocate until I saw a pig crate. Yeah. And that was such an emotionally shocking experience that I thought, oh, yeah, there's something to this. And I didn't like the nine kitchen, the nine chickens in a cage either. No. You know, we were taken around and shown all these places. Sure. And we were, shown the, we were shown the best of the best because nobody would let us in otherwise. Right. All, only what the places that thought that they were doing this the really, gold standard really well of, would yeah. let us in. And even then, it was quite shocking. And yeah. If America, if most American consumers saw the way their food was being, their food animals were being raised, they would quickly be proponents of a much, much different system. I, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I suppose so. Um, it is quite shocking if you're not used to it. Um, but of course, from the point of view of the people who are raising the meat, um, for instance, gestation crates, uh, they feel that those actually protect pigs and that it keeps the litter safe, mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of interesting and... And it's easier for them. It's much easier for them. It's easier for them. They can count the amount of feed. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Marion, I want to thank you so much for being on the show once again. And remember, folks, check out Marion's new book, Eat, Drink, Vote, and check out her wonderful blog, foodpolitics.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. So long for now. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.